be back and to jump in the Gospel of John again with you. Uh, all right, let's start with a story this morning. On September 26, 1991, Biosphere 2 opened in the Arizona desert. This, uh, you'll see a picture here on the screen, this three-acre site, this huge structure is the world's largest closed ecosystem with multiple buildings that's covered in 6,500 windows. And this research facility was built to prove that it's possible to replicate the Earth's ecological systems artificially so that future colonies could go to the moon or go to other planets. Now, attempting to replicate the complexity of creation artificially is a little bit of a tricky thing and maybe impossible. It's revealed that there are simply shortcuts that you can't take in something dynamic like God's creation. And so uh, trees are a perfect example. The bio, Biosphere 2, they've been growing trees in here for a couple decades now. And what they found is that trees, before they reach full maturity, tend to have huge limbs break off or they'll just fall over. And they've been trying to figure out why. Here's why. There's no wind inside a building. And what they found is there's no storms, there's no windy days, there's no snow load on the limbs in the winter, there's no adverse conditions to make the trees grow strong and resilient. You see, these trees, they need adversity in order to develop stress fibers in the wood and hard shells in the bark. They, they need to be pushed and tugged by the, by the wind in order to grow deep roots that keep the tree grounded and upright. Now, you'd expect that a tree would survive longer and be healthier without the danger of storms or the stresses of a dynamic environment, but it's just the opposite. The resilience of a tree only comes when it's tested. And the same goes for a grapevine. Okay, we've been in John 15. Sarah and I used to live in California. We used to live near Napa Valley. And as you drive through these valleys, Sonoma Valley, Napa Valley, you see vineyards are almost always planted on a hillside. And they're planted on a hill on purpose, in the direct sun, because the conditions need to stress the vine. And when vines are pruned properly, when they're stressed by the terrain or the weather, they grow incredibly delicious fruit. So last week we heard from John 15 that Jesus says, I am the true vine. And we are the branches, that we have the distinct privilege as the branch to be the ones who bear fruit. But Jesus says we can only bear fruit when we're connected to him. And that our fruit is for the Father's glory. So I want to begin this morning with a question. What are your expectations as a Christian? What are your expectations of what this life of faith is all about? What should we expect when we walk in obedience to Jesus in a world that's so often set against God? Maybe, maybe, I, can, maybe I can say it a slightly different way. Do you desire that the Christian life be comfortable and easy? Check your heart. Do you want a Biosphere 2 kind of experience? Protect me from the wind and the waves and the trials. I don't, I, I don't want to experience any of that stuff. So put that bubble around in order to make that possible. Or could you come to realize 
And I think what we're going to see in our text today, that God has placed you in a hostile and stormy world on purpose. That you would grow stronger in your faith and more dependent on your connection to the true vine, Jesus Christ. Friends, you need to hear this right up front. God cares more about your maturity than your comfort. Let me say this again. God cares more about your maturity than your comfort. And so let me ask, what are your expectations? This is the very question Jesus asks his disciples in the upper room on the evening before he goes to the cross. They had expected, if you look at the context of the Gospels, they'd said, okay, Jesus, he's the Messiah. Look at all the amazing things he's doing and the power that he has. We're going to go into Jerusalem and take care of business and get rid of these Romans. They thought that because they were in such close proximity to Jesus, that they would get power and authority, that life would be easy. The disciples even argued about who was going to sit at his right hand in his kingdom. And Jesus looks at them here in the upper room and he says, you got this all wrong. You got to check your expectations. You see, they, they wanted to sit in the afterglow of this victory over their enemies, take life easy. And Jesus looks at them and says, in order for you to be fruitful for the father's glory, you're going to follow in my footsteps. This is the evening before he goes to the cross. He says, if you're abiding in me, don't be surprised when they treat you like they treated me. So open with me to John 15. Grab your Bible, or if you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to have you get a copy here. Um, John 15, verses 18 to 25 is what we're going to read today. So you can follow along as I read. I want you to listen to how Jesus changes his disciples' expectations on the evening of his, the eve of his crucifixion. He's helping them understand what living in the world is going to be like because they belong to a different kingdom. So let's read and you'll see what I mean. So this is John 15, verses 18 to 25. Hear these words of Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, here's what we're going to do. There's three lessons we're going to see in this passage that, that help us understand what it's like to follow Jesus in a hostile world. So verses 18 and 19 help us to interpret our relationship to the world. 
Then verse 20, we're going to learn to set our expectations right in the world. And then verses 21 to 25 are all about understanding the errors of the world. And so interpreting our, our relationship to the world, setting our expectations, and then discerning what the world is like. So let's jump in and, and look at that. You'll see these, these different parts of our passage. So jump back to verse 18 with me about interpreting our relationship to the world. Now, friends, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He says right at the start, the world hates him and his disciples. That is some strong, that's a strong way to put it. There's no way, when you study this word that Jesus uses here, there's no way to soften that and sort of make that nice and cute. What we need to understand something critical about the Bible. The scriptures don't leave a lot of room for indifference or apathy. There's no biblical category for being meh about Jesus. You're either in the world or you're not in the world. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. You're either lost or found. You're either dead or alive. The Bible is so clear. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You see, there's a New Testament scholar, Don Carson, is a teacher of mine. He, he says that the words that Jesus speaks here in John 15, they demand a decision. They put something in front of you that you have to deal with. There's, he, he, what you need to understand here is that following Jesus means that you need to lay down your life. That, that not following him means that you're siding with a lost and broken and hateful world that's opposed to him. Now, Don Carson, he says that this is kind of a sobering reality when Jesus puts this up in front of people. Because it has two different implications, two effects, two ways that you can respond one is what Jesus says here challenges those who want easy faith. When you read what Jesus says, you can't read that and say, oh good, he wants it to be nice and comfy for me. It challenges those who say, I want the easy route. Isn't God going to make my life better? So that's the first thing is it challenges that notion. The other one is when you face what Jesus says, you realize that it, it, with the proper perspective, when you press towards it, it can foster true faith for those who are willing to be sifted and purified for God's glory. Friends, this is why Jesus says in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me, Jesus says, will save it. See, Jesus wants us to accurately interpret our relationship to the world. And what he looks, he looks straight in the eyes of his disciples at this moment in the upper room. And he says, you realize you don't belong here anymore. Look at verse 19. He says, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. In other words, he's plucked you out of darkness. In the gospel, Jesus has reached out and saved us by his grace when we were lost and dead in sin. And we now belong to him. 
You see, what we need to grasp here is if you truly understand, if you, if you truly follow Jesus as a true king in his heavenly kingdom, you will increasingly find yourself at odds with the, with, with the kingdoms of this world or with people who don't know Jesus or who are opposed to him. You're going to find that you don't desire the same things. My heart loves different things now. You're going to find that you don't view life from the same perspective, that you don't allocate time and energy towards the same pursuits. You're going to see that you're not swayed by the same anxieties and fears. You're going to find yourself walking in a new light with new joy, with new hope. In other words, when you delight in Christ and you walk in faithfulness to him, you're going to be like the person pictured in Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? It talks about a person who is like a tree, grown strong and resilient, planted near streams of living water, drawing on the living water himself, the word made flesh, that we would yield fruit in season. And as Psalm 1 says, that you would find yourself as one whose leaves do not wither because you're abiding in Jesus. Okay, the, the, in light of this fact that we belong to Jesus and his kingdom when you trust in Christ, we should uh, check our expectations. If we're going to follow him, what are our expectations? Okay, let's go to the next part. Let's look at verse 20. Okay, what I love here is so fascinating. Jesus quotes himself. Did you notice this? If you look in your Bible, and a lot of you have footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, in verse 20, Jesus quotes what he said a few moments before when he washed his disciples' feet in John 13, 16. What he says here, let me read the verse again. He says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they'll obey yours also. In other words, how people responded to me, because you can't be neutral towards Jesus. They go this way or this way. He said, don't be surprised when that happens for you. See, what he, what he does in this verse is he's, he's, he's reasserting the expectation that he has of his followers. We're going to do as he has done, loving sacrificially, serving humbly, but don't be surprised when that becomes a dividing line. Now, here's, here's what we need to grasp, and this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. If you speak and act like Jesus, shouldn't we expect to be treated like Jesus? Now, hold on a second. Jesus was beaten he was mocked. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was spit upon. He was given a crown of thorns. He was nailed to a plank of wood and lifted into the air so that he could suffocate to death. What, you want to talk about persecution. Jesus didn't just have his tax status taken away. He, he was killed. What I don't want you to miss here is that Jesus in this moment, and he sees the cross ahead of him the next day, is he looks at his disciples and he says, do you think you deserve better than me? If you're going to follow me, you're going to walk in my steps. Now, let's be honest, okay. Jesus isn't saying that following him means that we'll automatically encounter such brutal treatment. But it might. What are you going to make of that? This is what Jesus is posing to his disciples. There are Christians today, and we know this, there are Christians today who are 
beaten and mocked and killed for their faith today. I know of places that I've read about or missionaries I know in Asia and Middle East, Africa, the other, all over the place who are, when, when following Christ is viewed as treasonous to your family or your nation. It is dangerous to follow God. And friends, we enjoy such privileges in our nation. And yet, we are entering an era where being a Christian no longer gets you social capital. Rather, being a Christian today will cost you something in the public square. What do you make of that? These are Jesus' words to us today. What will you make of that reality? Will you pine for a time when being a Christian was easy, when it was culturally acceptable, when it was socially advantageous, when people didn't really take their faith seriously? Do you want to live in a time like that? Or are you going to see this era in God's providence over all history and your life and mine that we are alive today in an era of sifting in the church and in your life? I'll tell you this, just be honest with you. I'd rather be a pastor in an era of a sifted church than a cultural church. As hard as that will be. Because I long for us, all of us, to be a church that says, Lord, make us like Christ, even if that means you have to throw us into the crucible so that you can refine us with fire and melt away all of the dross of our idols and selfishness and sin. Do that to me. See, in this approach, like what are your expectations, friends? In this approach, we need to understand ultimately the reason why we're treated like Jesus is because... People, many people don't know him. Okay, let's look at the last section here because this, this helps to illuminate this a bit. Uh, we need to understand the errors here of the, of the world around us or that, that, that realization of people who don't know. Verses 21 to 25 help us to recognize this critical point. You need to understand this, friends. Jesus is the dividing line of history. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. He's the Lord of all creation. As Paul says in Colossians 1.17, He's before all things and in Him all things hold together. Everything pivots on Him. Jesus has already said, because here we are, we're still in the upper room. He's already said to His disciples in John 14.6 and 7. You'll see it on the screen. He, says, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, it is the exclusivity of Christ that is the dividing line. I need you to understand this. The key, what Jesus is describing, what he's telling his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion is he's saying, look, I am the only way, and that is going to be the dividing line. Because the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. It is like a drink of cold water when you're thirsty. It's your lifeblood. It's the place, it's the thing you need. It's the person that you need to surrender to. The cross is where we see the great love of God displayed for us. And Jesus makes this reality so clear when he sets his expectations of his followers. Okay, don't, un don't underestimate this. When you follow Jesus, you become an ambassador in your generation to the true king and his kingdom. As the body of Christ representing the ascended king, when we form a gospel-centered community like ours, a kingdom-minded community of faith as a contrast to the world, we become the visible expressions, the living witnesses of the dividing line of history himself, Jesus. You have his spirit in you. You follow his teachings, his words, and his actions. This is, this is what, he's, what, what Jesus is describing here. Is he says, don't get your expectations wrong. You need to understand as you're out in the world, how the world reacts to you. My disciples, the body of Christ, reveals whether they live in truth or error. He says, I am the dividing line. When you walk in my steps, don't be surprised. He says, I, what I want you to notice in this passage, there's two parallel sets of phrases that Jesus uses on purpose to kind of describe this reality, to show about this dividing line. So pick it up in verse 22, right? He says, and you'll see them in parallel here. It's like the wording is repeated. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. Do you see the parallels here? How Jesus uses parallel phrases to talk about the words that he has spoken. People have heard the words. There's no excuse. And then the actions that he's done. Have you seen the miracles? Have you heard about what he has done? There's no excuse now. He's saying that what he has said and done confirms that he is the only way. And I want to focus especially on his words for a moment because there's, there's a trajectory across the scriptures that reveals this. A really fascinating image and metaphor that the Bible uses to help us understand how the words that Jesus has spoken are the dividing line. Okay, you'll see it on the screen here if you want to jot down a couple notes on this for future reference. Isaiah 11 is a messianic prophecy, a, a looking ahead to, to, to the Messiah, who is called the shoot from the stump of Jesse, on whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon, who will judge with righteousness. And verse 4 says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. Now go to, later on in Isaiah, chapter 49. Another messianic prophecy, something looking ahead to Jesus and talking about the servant of the Lord who will come to bring light of salvation to the ends of the earth. And the text in verse 2 says, whose mouth is like a sharpened sword. Now fast forward to the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 19, verse 15. The Apostle John, same Apostle John, he's having a vision. 
And he has this vision of Jesus and he describes Jesus as having a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations set against God. There's a metaphor here that goes all across. You'll, these are only just a few examples all across the Bible of a vision of this sword coming out of the mouth of the Messiah as a metaphor that his words are the standard by which everything is judged. His words are the dividing line, the ultimate source of truth, the perfect word from God, the word made flesh. And so what we see here is this is why John says in verse 22 that there's no excuse. The supreme revelation of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you encounter his words, when you witness and experience or see or read about his works, you cannot be neutral. There is no space for you to say, ah, eh, I could take him or leave him. You can't be Claiming ignorance, if you've heard these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our text today is so clear, and this is what Jesus wants to help his disciples understand. How you respond to Jesus reveals whether you love or hate the Father. Whoa. Okay, I want to end with an encouragement. Because we could go, I, I think the intention of why this is here. In John 15, why Jesus speaks these words to his disciples is to make sure that we set our expectations right. But Jesus' intention here is not to make us angry with the world. It's not to make us uh, return hate. It's not in to entrench ourselves against others. Rather, in the context of the upper room, Jesus' command is to display such radical love and compassion and yet being firm on what is good, right, and true. That people would see as we, the, 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 that we would have this compassionate response to and love and care, recognizing that so many people around us desperately need Jesus. See, friends, it should break our hearts that so many people don't know the real hope and joy and peace that's offered in the free forgiveness and redemption through Christ. It should cut you to the heart. And yet Jesus doesn't sugarcoat our presence in the world. Even, even as we live with sacrificial love and compassion towards others, even as we stand for what is good and true and right, even as we walk in faith together, we will encounter opposition. This is what Jesus tells us. We may be mocked. We might find ourselves at odds with friends or family or neighbors or coworkers. We might even find that people hate us. And Jesus says, what are you going to do with that? It might not feel just when you're saying, I'm trying so hard to love my family member. I'm trying so hard to be a, a, a faithful believer in my workplace, and yet this is, this is how I get repaid. Friends, this is why Jesus ends in verse 25 with these words. This is to fulfill what was written in the law. They hated me without reason. I need you to know when you're trying, and it just doesn't feel like, why? Why? Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. You see, 
I need you to remember this, friends. You, in these moments, you're being treated like your Savior, Jesus. It reminds me of the apostles who were dragged before the Sanhedrin and put on trial as when they were talking about the words and deeds of Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41 say this. You'll see it on the screen. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, whipped, beaten. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Some of you, I mean, many of you know, I've shared this, that I was a church planter in San Francisco for five years before coming here. And there were times, I I, I tell you some stories, but there were times where there was overt persecution for my faith in the places that I was ministering in. And, and, And not just that, but just other struggles that were happening. So much of that difficulty, the Lord reminded me to rejoice that as, his, as, as a disciple of Jesus, that, that our calling is to, to rejoice that we could be counted worthy to be disgraced for Jesus. And, and some of you know, I've mentioned this, I have a wall in my office, and it was at my home office in San Francisco, that I call my wall of suffering. It's like poems or song lyrics or scripture passages the Lord brought to encourage me in difficult times. These like stones of remembrance, if you will. And one, was, one such poem was by one of my teachers, Don Carson, whom I mentioned. He wrote a poem that was inspired by this very passage. This is what he wrote as an expression of this, what are your expectations? You'll see the words on the screen. I told the folk I cherished how my sins had been forgiven, how Jesus changed my outlook, took my guilt, and gave me heaven. They thought I'd lost my senses, turned fanatic, lost my reason. They charged me with betrayal, with a vicious kind of treason. And I wondered, why salvation? For the slave is not above the Lord he serves. My assignment was the cross. You, my slave, will bear some loss. My disciple takes his cross and daily nerves his heart and mind to follow me. Then soon I learned my brothers and my sisters in the Savior so often shine in suffering with astonishing behavior, adorn the blessed gospel with forbearing perseverance, forgive their cruel tormentors with a graceful, firm endurance. And still I wondered why salvation should cause them so much pain. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. For the slave is not above the Lord he serves. My assignment was the cross. You, my slave, will bear some loss. My disciple takes his cross and daily nerves his heart and mind to follow me. What alien perspectives I've pursued with willful blindness. For apostolic servants would rejoice at God's great kindness in reckoning them worthy to take on a little battery. They long to know Christ's power and the fellowship of suffering. For they understood their calling to trust and suffer pain. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
for the slave is not above the Lord he serves. My assignment was the cross. You, my slave, will bear some loss. My disciple takes his cross and daily nerves his heart and mind to follow me. Friends, may, be, may we be counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you in all these things. Knowing that many of us need to adjust our expectations. That if we somehow have, have convinced ourselves to desire the easy life, that we would adjust and understand that what it means to stand in faithfulness means that we'll be treated like you were. But in that, Lord, there's not purposelessness in that. There's a purpose of you growing us in our faith and dependence and desperation for you. That by your spirit, you would strengthen us. That you would cause our faith to grow. That you would give us resilience. And in that way, as we pursue following you in faith with joy and hope and ups and downs, that the world would see that as a witness to the gospel. that we would be walking around as visible expressions of the truth of who you are, the great dividing line of history, that by your grace we belong to you. You've plucked us out of darkness. We stand in that grace with open hands every day. Make us your witnesses in this era, in this time, in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.